Thank you, Professor Chen, and good afternoon to all of you. Um, I know it's lunch hour, so <laughs> please bear with me. Um, as Professor Chen said, this particular project that I'm working on now, um, it's a project that started some three years back, uh, which is called People, Places and Infrastructure, looking at countering urban violence in Durban, Rio and Mumbai. So it's a three university uh, collaborative project. Uh, in Durban, we have University of KwaZulu-Natal, and in Rio, we have uh, the University of uh, Federal University of Rio, who's working on, uh, all three universities are working on the same theme of looking at the social and the spatial transformations of these particular three cities, and the role that violence, urban violence has played in both transforming cities as well as the outcomes of violence uh, in these particular transformations of cities. And what we're trying to look at is how peace is uh, brokered in these very volatile environments. Uh, who are the different actors? What are the different processes? Uh, what leads to the different ways in which uh, our urban violence is countered across these three cities? In the city of Mumbai, uh, we are doing four case studies, my colleagues and I. And uh, the four case studies are geographically sort of spread out. If you know a little bit about the city of Mumbai, it's in the western coast of India. It's, a very, uh, it's about 300, 200, 300 years old. Uh, it began as a port city. Um, before that, it was just a collection of uh, seven fishing villages. And because of the British, when they came in, um, the colonizers, they came in and they made a port out of the area where they were able to then transfer the goods um, across by sea. So this is the roughly the history of Mumbai. And Mumbai has grown from that to being about a city which is 18 million strong now in terms of population. It's grown to a size of 468 square kilometers. Um, and it's, it, it has uh, multiple different neighborhoods. Uh, where it started off was the island city of Mumbai, uh, but now it has sort of moved up north along the commuter railway lines, and it's sort of spread into this mammoth uh, metropolis. Um, the case that I am dealing with uh, is in the heart of the city. Uh, the heart of the old city, that the core area of the city, which is called the island city. And um, this, this area is called, it's the neighborhood called Kamatipura. Uh, Kamatipura is very interesting because it began, it was actually created uh, by the Kamatis, a particular group, uh, community of people who came from southern India and settled in Bombay, in this particular neighborhood, uh, the Kamatis, and who worked as construction laborers in making uh, what was then colonial India. So they were all the builders, they were the construction workers, and they helped to construct the railways, the buildings, the edifices, all of this. At the same time, Kamatipura's reputation uh, then and today is probably it is much more infamously synonymous with commercial sex work. So it is known as uh, India's second largest uh, red light district. And the interest of looking at this particular neighborhood is because um, all around Kamatipura today, 
are neighborhoods that have uh, been rapid, rapidly transformed by neoliberalization. By that I mean the state and the market have taken great pains in transforming land in the areas right around Kamatipura to very high-end housing, commercial development, malls, financial uh, banks. So the area around Kamatipura is something which has suddenly seen a spurt of redevelopment activity. So the reason was that why is Kamatipura then an island in the midst of all these redevelopment activities? Uh, is there something special about Kamatipura that it is able to retain its character from what it had started as? Or is it a systematic neglect by the state as well as the market to, neg uh, to sort of bypass this particular neighborhood uh, in the process of capital accumulation in the city of Bombay? So these were some of the questions that led me to actually look at uh, what is happening in Kamatipura today? Uh, is it a dead neighborhood? Is it a stagnant neighborhood? Uh, is there, uh, who actually is living in Kamatipura? What is happening in Kamatipura? Is the state not interested in Kamatipura? Is the state neglecting Kamatipura? What is the market's attitude to Kamatipura? What are the people in Kamatipura? What do they think? What do they aspire for? Because all around them, they see all these towers of redevelopment coming around them. So what is, how are they sort of looking at this whole process of redevelopment? Now, if you know, urban redevelopment is actually the site of urban transformations across many cities in the world. And so it's not unique to the city of Bombay at this moment. Uh, as it is a site of transformation, it is also a site of great contestation across multiple actors, each trying to take, stake a claim in this particular process of redevelopment. You know, in most cases, we see redevelopment happening as a, a top-down process, driven by state actors uh, with money from the market, Right? So it's redevelopment that's mostly top-down and has the, uh, the idea is to create, uh, generate value out of areas which did not have value. So you commodify land and generate value, so the, you enable the flow of capital in the city, the, you enable process of capital accumulation in the city. Uh, most of the literature in, uh, around redevelopment in most cities that I've come, come across actually look at processes where they look at the, uh, the state and the market as the chief drivers of redevelopment. Very little of that literature actually captures what is going on in the ground. What is the agency of people who are, in, who are sort of facing redevelopment? How are they influencing the process of redevelopment? Are they simply passive spectators? Or are they able to leverage some of what they do and what they are into this process of redevelopment. So my interest in Kamatipura was also to sort of switch the lens and try and see the process of redevelopment from inside out, try and see it from the eyes of the people who live and work in Kamatipura. Uh, one of the things that's come out, and so this is very much work in progress. Uh, I've been in the field for about a month and a half, uh, for a year and a half now, 
and it's all ethnographic research. It's a very difficult area to research um, because uh, of the kind of activities that happen there. People are very suspicious of researchers. There's even a kind of a research fatigue amongst uh, people who are being studied too much. So, um, you know, and there's always this question of what do you have to offer us? You know, are you, are you part of the developers? Have you come on behalf of the state? So there were these rounds of um, initial sort of uh, barriers and challenges to uh, doing ethnographic research that we had to encounter. Uh, we are now at the stage where we have about 50 odd in-depth interviews and we are still transcribing a lot of them. But I'm just going to bring up some of the initial sort of flavor that we're getting from the field. So one of the, one of the important things that we're getting from the field is that we definitely think that redevelopment is a much more messy and unpredictable process than what is being projected in the literature, right? And basically, uh, redevelopment requires an uneven geography of value, of value production to be able to be possible. And also that the outcomes of redevelopment are very much contingent upon the particular context, uh, the political economic context, uh, the socioeconomic factors, as well the historical weight of that particular place and the actors who've lived in that place for very, very long. So basically, this is a way of problematizing uh, and looking at redevelopment from inside out. Another key point that I would like to make uh, here is that there are multiple groups uh, that come together uh, they fo form uh, these kind of collaborative configurations. But again, these are not permanent configurations. They're very much configurations that are born out of a certain need to respond to a particular situation. So these configurations are formed between different actors and they might be even uh, have very different ideological uh, uh, trajectories, they might be of very different castes, they might belong to very different community groups, but still they come together in these sort of very nebulous forms of configuration where they're able to uh, either support uh, different instances of redevelopment or they're able to resist, resist or challenge or contest redevelopment from the, the collective strength of binding together. But these groups do not form permanent institutional frameworks. These groups also rapidly sort of die out uh, once the particular purposes are finished. So I'm going to be talking about a little bit about how these groups and coalitions are formed, but how these coalitions might even die down and why they die down and don't become much more collective mobilizations in this case. And, um, the question then Kamatipura then uh, poses to us is, uh, given the resilience of this particular neighborhood, given that it still exists, almost, almost in the way, almost as if there is a durability, an incredible durability of this neighborhood, does it mean we are looking at some alternative uh, framework 
by which we can understand urban development. And that not urban development is going to be uh, shiny new mall complexes, uh, the complete dispossession and displacement of the urban poor to the periphery, but an urban, uh, but a possible urban future where neighborhoods can be robust, socially inclusive, uh, just, and can accommodate different kinds of people, practices that may not be entirely uh, legal in the regulatory sense of the framework, right? So is there a possibility of neighborhoods like this in our cities that challenge the sort of flow or challenge the kind of dominant narrative of redevelopment that there is today? And whether Kamatipura is actually um, showing the way or is it something else that's happening there? So this is what I would uh, like to... Uh, so the structure of the talk is like this. I'm going to talk a little bit about how Kamati, Kamatipura fits within Mumbai, uh, the spaces and the livelihoods in Kamatipura, the history of those spaces and livelihoods, and look at the transformations in Mumbai's land and housing market, because this is where I think the contradictions become really palpable, because uh, Mumbai, as you know, is, uh, I just told you, is 18 million in terms of population, out of which 54% of the population is living in informal housing. And informal housing, and of which 8% is, um, and it only covers 8% of the land. Mumbai also has, in terms of contradictions, if you look at really contradictions, uh, 50,000 units of housing are being made every year, which are actually lying vacant. They're very high-end housing stock. They're being used for speculative purposes, but there's no one actually living in those houses. So, um, which is which is why this this reason. So there is this old decrepit, blue-collar neighborhood in right in the heart of Mumbai. Uh, with a lot of old dilapidated structures, uh, housing almost a population of 50,000 people in Kamatipura today. Uh, and those are very conservative numbers of people who live in Kamatipura and work in Kamatipura. So what's really going on if Mumbai is being transformed and rapidly transformed? Uh, what does Kamatipura say about uh, this larger trajectory of Mumbai's land and housing market? Uh, the history of redevelopment efforts in Kamatipura so I earlier said that uh, Kamatipura has been neglected by the state and possibly even bypassed by the market. Well, that's not really true. There have been different points at which both the state and the market have tried their best to actually enter Kamatipura and completely restructure it. Uh, there have been many plans and proposals, but each time, each time it has sort of been uh, abandoned or resisted or challenged. So really to understand what those points of challenge were, what those points of, of resistance were, who was resisting these kinds of development prop propositions, uh, and what kind of support there is also for redevelopment today. And of course, the socio-spatial outcomes, the implications of these redevelopment efforts. Uh, if you've noticed my the highlight of my talk is it says that sex, lies, and red tape. Well, part of the 
challenge of doing this kind of research is that not all of the redevelopment is actually bricks and mortar redevelopment. It's actually the talk of redevelopment, the rumors of redevelopment that have a deep and politicized impact on the neighborhood of Kamatipura. So it's in the form of lies, it's in the form of half-truths, it's in the form of uh, part projects, pictures, uh, aspirational sort of uh, videos that developers are preparing, sort of saying that, look, this is what Kamatipura is going to become, uh, to sort of lure people into the redevelopment uh, game. The other part of it is, of course, the red tape, the bureaucracy, the, the rules and reg regulations around urban planning in India that frames and constructs Kamatipura as a particular neighborhood that is not permeable to certain sorts of redevelopment, right? So I'm going to be coming to a bit of this. So just to give you an idea of where Kamatipura is, this is, an, this is the tip of Mumbai Island. And if you see the, the, the black box over there, that's, that's the tiny neighborhood of Kamatipura. It's basically 16 lanes uh, and about 50,000 population. If you see the, the circle over there is the docks the old Mumbai, uh, Bombay docks, um, uh, to, the, to the left of the Kamatipura neighborhood uh, where you see uh, is Bombay Central Railway Station, again one of the major railway stations in Mumbai. Uh, there's the Grant Road Railway Station uh, which is also very, very conveniently located to the neighborhood. Uh, the red patches that you see over there are actually mill lands of Bombay. The industrial uh, mill lands of Bombay, which from the colonial era to about the late 80s defined what Bombay was as an industrial city, right? So this is very much located in the heart of the island city, uh, very conveniently located. So as a neighborhood, uh, it's of tremendous value in terms of real estate today. So all around this black box, uh, just to give you an idea, it's about rupees 25,000 square, uh, rupees 25,000 per square feet is the going rate for uh, housing in this particular area. To compare it to what Kamatipura uh, is, uh, today in terms of the, uh, the rates there, it's a roughly around 1,500 only. So what sort of tells you, you know, this great di di uh, di difference of value in terms of housing? So rupees 1500 square, uh, per square feet versus rupees 25,000 square feet. So that's the great difference of value in terms of redevelopment. So developers are actually now eyeing this particular pocket of land and they're saying, well, you know, there is good money to be made if we just, you know, bulldoze the entire neighborhood and we create the towers of redevelopment over there. So what's holding them back? Uh, to give you an idea of Kamatipura, it's, um, it's a 16-lane neighborhood. It's bound by major roads. It's very dense and congested. It has three to four-story buildings. Uh, very little ventilation between the buildings, very poor sanitation. The buildings were built in the 1800s by the colonial rulers themselves and also some of the mill owners to house the workers. And so the, in terms of the housing condition, it's very, very dilapidated. Also, you have to understand there is the Rent Control Act that is, is, that is in operation in this particular neighborhood, which means that 
the landlords can't extract rent beyond a certain point. So the rents are actually frozen at the rate that they used to be in 1940. So basically landlords are not able to make any rent out of these buildings and buildings have become very poorly maintained. They're almost nearing collapse. So every year in monsoon, you have about five to 10 buildings collapsing. And these are fatal collapses sometimes with people dying in these buildings. So, so you know, there's this, 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 this is really poor. There are groups uh, of homeless people in this particular neighborhood. There are migrant laborers, communities who've come here. Uh, there is the older Kamatis who live here. The, the, new, the, the sex workers, the older sex workers uh, from uh, down south who also live here in the brothels where they practice commercial sex workers. Uh, you have the new migrants from the north of India, the UPs, the Bengalis, the Biharis, different communities who have now come and settled in Kamatipura because it affords them extremely cheap housing. It affords them uh, a workplace as well. It also affords them uh, invisibility from the police. Uh, a certain invisibility from the authorities to practice these kind of trades that are sort of under the radar. So there is an, there, there's a whole underground economy, an informal economy that's linked to very much the commercial sex work. So who were the original commercial sex workers? The original commercial sex workers were um, European women uh, uh, who were there to service the British soldiers as well as the British merchants who were passing through Bombay uh, during that point of time. And it was actually the middle class indigenous uh, people of Bombay who said, we do not want uh, these kind of immoral activities in our backyard. So we need to have a zone of containment where you can contain these kind of activities. So it's away from our particular neighborhoods, but it's in, a, it's in an area which can be regulated uh, through social mores and through policing, through different ways and, and sort of very violent modes of keeping control and eye out on these women. So basically it sort of emerged in the 1800s with European women, but quickly there were Afghani women, there were Japanese women, and there were Indian women who became uh, sex workers and who, who became, um, uh, who were placed in the brothels over here. Today, uh, most of the brothel um, sex workers, brothel-based sex workers, the women are from uh, West Bengal, that's to the east of the country, uh, from Nepal as well. So they're being trafficked from across the borders, from Bangladesh, Nepal, as well as from within India, from UP, Bihar, and Bengal. So there is, there is a sense of um, uh, a decline in the sex trade as well. So because roughly around the 80s, uh, what you had is the decline of the mill lands in Mumbai. So the customer base for commercial sex work sort of also declined. In the 90s, there was a huge outbreak of AIDS which uh, affected this neighborhood deeply. So customers feared coming to this particular neighborhood because they feared for their lives. Many of the sex workers uh, lost their lives to AIDS and HIV. Uh, so it started dwindling right then. And then post that, what has happened is uh, towards the late 90s, these women have become increasingly displaced uh, from their brothels by more sort of lucrative 
uh, sort of small manufacturing units that have now been placed in the brothels instead of the women. So the women have been evicted pushed out of the brothels and in their place migrant male workers are coming in to work on small small manufacturing units. So it's bag making, shoe making, uh, recycling of jeans, recycling of shirts, recycling of jewelry, recycling of mobile handsets. So what have you? So almost everything gets recycled and churned through this neighborhood and then again pushed back out into the city. So there is a huge demographic shift that's happening in the neighborhood, but there's also a sense of the, uh, the, the, the older Kamatis, the older populations who are sort of claiming now that this, they have a put, they have a right to claim redevelopment rights in Kamatipura and that they want to become now, um, they want to now leverage the benefits of the real estate prices, the land prices that have been pushed up in India over the, la uh, pushed up in the city of Bombay. So this is just to give you some pictures, uh, just the sense of the, the chawl kind of buildings, how um, the typically, so within, uh, so on the left you have a chawl kind of a building where migrant laborers with their families will stay. On the right you have, uh, you see at the bottom level, there are women who are there who are actually soliciting uh, uh, customers on the ground. Uh, to the left, you have a very old cinema hall in the particular area, a theater. So Kamatipura was also known as the leisure district. There was a hierarchy of leisure and pleasure, uh, so to speak, in the district, uh, in this particular neighborhood. So you had the dancers who would sort of be at the top rung. Then you'd have the, the ones who would uh, be the higher priced prostitutes and then there would be the brothel based prostitutes. But then at the very bottom of that pile today you have the sex workers who work off the street and earn very, very little uh, in terms of the money they make. So off the sex work you have, uh, you have perfume shops. You have, so that men can go to the perfume shops, there are uh, local eateries, it says it stays open 24-7 uh, throughout the night. Uh, there are um, lottery shops, there are gambling dens, small gambling dens, then there are these video parlors, and then there are these cinema halls. So basically it's a district that caters to the young male migrant uh, who comes on his own to the city and therefore needs to sort of find uh, an outlet for his, uh, uh, for his uh, desires. So this is, this is the kind of the makeup of Kamatipura. This is a, this is a land use plan today. Uh, the yellow sort of patches show mostly um, residential use. Uh, towards the north, uh, if you see the re big red block that is there, uh, north and left, that is where uh, it's shown as commercial. But uh, it's one of the it's one of the premier houses uh, that houses uh, sex workers even today. So in the development plan, what I'd like to sort of show, there is obviously uh, in the development plan of Mumbai, there is obviously no recognition of sex work. It is either marked in the development plan as residential or it is marked as commercial or it is marked as um, uh, mixed land use. Uh, so there is no formal recognition given to this particular kind of work. So which makes them even more vulnerable 
to the processes of redevelopment in terms of what these uh, what the future holds for them. So the denseness of the spaces and the activities in Kamatipura, uh, just to give you a sense, so on the left, these are the genes dying units, uh, the male migrants. So what these pictures show is how every little space, every little corner, uh, including the street, is being used, heavily used, for either work, for some kind of uh, work, for some kind of livelihood generation, or it is being used to actually cook on the street, to sleep on the street, and there is a kind of spatial as well as temporal nature to the activities in Kamatipura. So it's heavily, it's sort of dense, it's networked, it's packed, where people form very close ties with other people in order to get these kind of livelihood practices going. So they're basically making do what, whatever, with whatever little they have. And the space of Kamatipura is something that is being used beyond the potential of the development plan. So the, the development plan cannot even conceive of the layers and the complexities of multiple uses that this particular place uh, actually proposes uh, and actually holds. So transformations in uh, Kamatipura, I've already talked a little bit about this, but to show you pictures of what uh, Kamatipura is becoming. So in the background, you see that tall, wafer-thin building that's coming up. So which used to house, again, a brothel, uh, but now that brothel has been demolished, and in its place, there is uh, the private developer has come and built this huge, tall tower that's coming up. On the right is, uh, again, uh, which used to be a brothel, but now uh, there are more middle-class residents who have redeveloped this particular housing, uh, using their political clout with the local pol politicians and getting some money to redevelop their very dilapidated housing. So just to give uh, a sense of what is happening in Mumbai today, uh, in the central area, this is what Mumbai looks like in uh, today's time. A huge transformation, commodification of land, uh, whereas in the 70s, Mumbai's state intervened very heavily in the land market and regulated the land market through land reg uh, through ceilings on land regulation, through rent control acts. Today, it's, um, it's almost as if the state is a facilitator for the market to redevelop this particular land and to get the maximum benefit out of the land in central Mumbai. So this is what central Mumbai holds and Kamatipura is very close to this particular area which is being redeveloped and restructured rapidly. So what I'd like to say is that redevelopment has thus in Mumbai over the last 10 to 12 years it has not only converted the state's role with respect to redevelopment, but it has also converted residents and their relation to the state. Both, of, both the state as well as the residents, I would say, are keen actors as well as players. They have become entrepreneurs in their own right in this whole process of redevelopment. And each of them is trying to get you know, the maximum benefit of the potential of this land market change. Uh, redevelopment is therefore a site, a key site, where contestations, negotiations, and conflicts are being played out on an everyday uh, basis. And Kamatipura sort of uh, highlights this. 
just to show you the politics of redevelopment in Kamatipura and the coalitions and the conflicts uh, we've been talking about. So in the colonial era, uh, the colonial rulers actually rebuilt some of these tenement housing and they built uh, the, the, the sort of planned sort of parallel streets that you saw, the 16 parallel streets that you saw, that was an effort by the colonial rulers to give some order to the chaos that was Kamatipura in the late 1800s. So they added a little bit of infrastructure in that time. Uh, who were the major players at that particular point of time? The indigenous elites, the Parsis, who owned the mill lands were sort of uh, instrumental in this process because they said, well, if we are not going to have sex workers in our backyard or amongst us uh, in, in our neighborhoods, but in the neighborhood where they should be contained, uh, let's have a plan for that particular neighborhood. Uh, the landlords themselves who had these buildings where sex workers as well as the Kamatis lived, as well as the Bombay Municipal Corporation came in as a big player in the colonial era to sort of restructure this particular neighborhood. So what you had was in a sense a grid pattern, sort of evolution of a street pattern which was sort of formally laid out, but a very dense neighborhood, very, very dense neighborhood with almost no open spaces. Coming to 1957, post uh, our independence, what we have is uh, the government of, West, uh, the, of Maharashtra takes an active interest when, uh, in this particular area and it proposes that Kamatipura be redesignated in the plans of the city as a slum area, as an informal settlement. And during this time, uh, what would it would enable is for the Slum Clearance Act to kick in. And therefore, you could actually demolish some of these buildings and rebuild some of these areas. Uh, what this enabled them to do is that uh, the government will it enable the government at this point to build a few amenities, a few gardens and open spaces by demolish, demolishing the older houses. They created a few new buildings. Uh, the state as well as the central government uh, gave money. The World Bank was also interested, um, uh, not sorry, not, not the World Bank that came in later, but the landlords themselves were also very interested in, uh, in the kind of redevelopment that was going on then. Uh, however, in these 20 years, in, after the initial sort of round of breaking down buildings and putting in gardens, what happened is it came to a complete standstill. And this happened because the landlords, after their initial enthusiasm, right, of creating new buildings and getting new tenants, realized that really they were not benefiting from the Slum Clearance Act at all and that they had little to benefit from this, so they stalled this particular project, much to the dismay of the tenants who were living in buildings that were almost already 100 years old. Coming to 1977 and 2007, this sort of, uh, this period sort of showed, um, there was a, wow, I don't know what happened. Is it timed? Did I step on something? Yeah? Uh, on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So between 1977 and 2007, uh, the state government, through the Maharashtra Housing Authority and Development, Housing and Development Authority, uh, Mahada it was called, it was a state level institution. Uh, it came in again in a big way in trying to create a comprehensive, unique 
urban renewal plan for the neighborhood. Uh, what this meant is the state thought of this as this comprehensive meaning an entire change reshaping of the neighborhood. Very interestingly, in this particular plan, so they went in and they did a full-scale survey in 1977. Uh, in this particular urban renewal scheme, what they did is, um, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, what they did is uh, they happen, uh, they actually included uh, uh, the the they said that the development would not displace the sex workers, the development, redevelopment would actually include the sex workers. So this was a, a plan that the government instituted. Again, however, the landlords came down heavily against this plan and they said, well, we don't stand to gain from this plan. And the World Bank also pulled out at the last minute saying, well, this is too unique a scheme and it can't be replicated across the city. So we, we do not want to put our monies here. So clearly they sort of came back. So now in 2007, uh, when the, the entire redevelopment framework has been changing, uh, and there are market players entering, private developers entering all of Mumbai and trying to redevelop all of Mumbai. There is this real realtor called DB Realty who comes up with his own uh, redevelopment scheme. Again, it's a cluster scheme for the entire area. However, of course, as a private developer, he asks the state for extra incentive FSI, floor space index, so that the saleable component of the, of the particular redevelopment project is very, very high. And the government also, um, the state government also steps in and says, yes, we'll accord this a special status project, showing how the government was involved and colluding with the market players at this point of time. However, he went to jail because of another particular scam and this project too fell through the cracks. So again, you have Kamatipura in 2007 after three efforts still standing, still uh, sort of um, is sort of changing, but not in the full scale, large scale redevelopment, uh, redeveloped restructuring that you would uh, think it to be. In 2013, and currently what you have is the landlords themselves have formed a cooperative. There are two groups of landlords. So there are uh, the landlords which are the original Telugu speaking Kamathis, uh, the original residents of, of the particular neighborhood. They have formed a collective and they say, uh, they are saying that we are going to redevelop Kamatipura and the women, uh, the sex workers have no place here. The Muslim landlords have no place here. The shopkeepers have no place here. This is going to be a place which is going to be only for us because we are the original uh, uh, residents of this particular place. There is another group of landlords who, become, who belong to the North Indian Hindi speaking community and they also want a cluster redevelopment. Much of the goals are the same. They're saying we don't want the sex workers here. We want a sanitized environment. We do not want the Muslims here. Uh, we want uh, a better environment for our children to grow up. And since we are the original traders and the shopkeepers in the area, we will rede redevelop Kamatipura in our way. And basically the Telugu speaking community is, will is if they're willing, they can join us. Both of these factions are now at loggerheads and each 
have sort of their entry point into the state government as well as the local government. So the state government and the local government are playing both groups at this moment and trying to see which will come up with a, a plan that will actually include uh, some of these demands and push forward. So these are some of the redevelopment, uh, the, the, the aspirations that you see. Um, so I'm just going to quickly sort of say, so this is what has happened in recent times. Uh, there has been a sustained campaign by groups, uh, community groups within Kamatipura who are trying to remove the sex workers. Uh, and basically they're saying, you know, the sex workers are giving us a bad name. They're only, uh, you know, they're only 2,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 of them. And they're only in three lanes, but the rest of the 13 lanes that are there, we are regular people, but we're not able to find jobs. We're not able to find wives. We're not able to find husbands because our names are associated with commercial sex work and what is synonymous with sex work in Kamatipura. So there is this sustained effort by residents and suddenly there is a hostility, a new environment of hostility towards activities which were tolerated in this particular area uh, through this long history of Kamatipura's existence in the city of Mumbai. On the right, you have a picture of, uh, of a demolished uh, sort of brothel and uh, the older sex workers have just kept their stuff on the street there and they're sort of very, very vulnerable uh, because, you know, they, they're the ones sort of at the, at the, they have nowhere to go, they have no families to fall back on, and they're sort of falling through the cracks in, in the dialogues because none of these decisions, none of these dialogues about what is Kamatipura's future are being actually carved out by the, the shopkeepers, the landlords, the state, the urban local government, the developers, the builders, and the politicians, but definitely they do not include the most vulnerable groups of all, which includes the homeless communities, the, the, the women, the sex workers, the transgender sex workers, as well as um, the, the Muslim community that lives in Kamatipura. So what do we really have? So the durability of Kamatipura for so long, is it an alternative urban development trajectory? Uh, so if Mumbai is transforming at such a rapid rate, why is not, or why has Kamatipura sort of, at every point, sort of challenged redevelopment, challenged restructuring? What is this pushback against redevelopment that you have, uh, the pushback against the state and the market? Well, I think that part of the reason is because of the, the, the lies, the packaging of redevelopment, the multiple modes in which redevelopment is being crafted as projects and thrust upon the people, uh, and also the people from certain sections of the people within the community are sort of working uh, uh, to sort of shape and influence how redevelopment will take place uh, has led to the fragmentation of communities in Kamatipura. Uh, there is conflict of interest, there are new configurations of actors collaborating together or contesting redevelopment. So there are some that are with the builders, the big builders, there are some who have sided with the smaller builders. There are some in Kamatipura who say no builders at all, but let's just bring the state in. Uh, the state should take on the responsibility of our rehabilitation. So there are these fragmentations uh, that are happening. Uh, the 
stakes are so complex and particularly when I showed you the spaces of livelihood that continue to thrive, that continue to survive in Kamatipura, the fact that it's so complex and densely embedded in the very fabric of Kamatipura, it is impossible for the state or the market to actually penetrate and have a one-size-fits-all redevelopment project, right? So it's impossible to know what these practices are. It's impossible to know these multiple configurations of actors. It's impossible to, you know, get consensus for one particular project to actually uh, hold and withhold itself. So what does this do? Possibly it does create certain spaces for opposition as well as resistance. And definitely uh, we could think of, because of the, the density, the proximity of these networks, the way in which these spaces uh, accommodate uh, different kinds of livelihood practices that would otherwise be thought of as illegal or informal, there is a possibility that there can be alternative outcomes to uh, a redevelopment process that only looks at displacement and dispossession of the urban poor, but maybe a, 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 a practice that, um, a, maybe a redevelopment that actually looks at including some of these most marginalized voices in society. I'd like to end with a, a quote here, and this is a Marathi poet and a, and a Dalit activist also from the particular area, who says, O Kamatipura, tucking all seasons under your armpit, you squat in the mud here. I go beyond all pleasures and pains of whoring and wait for your lotus to bloom. So it's not really clear whether the lotus will bloom or not and who will it bloom for. But clearly, you know, Kamatipura looks like it's stuck in, in the current way that it is for some time to come. At, uh, but it also opens up uh, the possibilities of uh, doing some good work here in terms of informing the government, informing uh, collectivities of people what their rights and how to claim uh, their stake to the city and give them uh, a more empowered stake in the city's uh, redevelopment agenda. So thank you. Thank you.